Turn to the Old Testament, Jonah. We're going to read a few passages, a few verses out of chapter 1 and out of chapter 4. We began our service as Joe read from chapter 2, the prayer that Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of a great fish. As you're finding your spot there in Jonah, who is the person that you actually don't like? And some of you kind of smirk and chuckle. No, who is that person? Or who are those people? And actually, who are those people that secretly you hate? People have hurt you. People have wronged you. People you've seen in this world do terrible things. And there's hatred in your heart towards them. I'm talking about the people that you are fine if you found out today that they died. You're okay if something bad happens to them because they've done bad things. Who is that person or people that you've secretly prayed and asked the Lord to bring his wrath upon, to destroy, to wipe out? Maybe it's a group of people, a group of people that you can't, that you don't even know, but you desire that their destruction would come upon them. And you do not care in your heart if they know Christ or not. Is your favorite sports team Your favorite pastime more important to you than those who are dying and perishing in their sins. Jonah's 48 verses, four chapters. Some of you might even have it memorized. You can tell every detail of the story. I was amazed this week as I read just articles about people who are not even Christians, but cultures and people around the world that know this story. People know for the most part, the story of Jonah. Some of you may have come this morning going, what am I going to learn? Well, that's why we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us, remind us, teach us anew. It's a very small book in the Old Testament. Jonah is not a made-up story, even though it reads as a parable, because there's a response by the reader that is required at the end of it. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks of Jonah as in him being uh, in the grave three days and three nights. He says, as Jonah was in the belly of a fish uh, three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man uh, as well in the grave. The theme throughout the book of Jonah is God's sovereign control and God's grace that extends to the Gentiles. The scriptural truth this morning is that God's grace, love, and mercy are seen in his sovereign control of the universe. As we look at Jonah chapter 1, I'll read three verses from there, and then I will flip to uh, chapter 4. Let me just see by show of hands, how many of you have heard or read the story of Jonah? Look around the room, a lot of hands. Some of you are like, I kind of know, maybe I I know. Here we go, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Look over at chapter 4 now of Jonah. Look at verse 6 through the end of the chapter. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And it ends with a question mark. And it ends with a call for a response by the reader. Father, again, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of the word and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you go back to chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, you see that God uh, says to call out against the city. This is why he sends Jonah to Nineveh. Again, we don't know. This is not a a, a history, biography. It's not a a huge thing about Jonah. We know he has a dad named Amittai. And we also know that Jesus speaks of Jonah. We also know that one other reference is in 2 Kings 14. And that Jonah lived during the reign um, of the evil king of Israel, Jeroboam II. And you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 14. But it says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That is so important as you look at these 48 verses in these four chapters. From the very beginning, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 4. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 4 regarding the word of God. Chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give what? Account. The word of God has come to Jonah. God has been very specific. Jonah has not had to get a magnifying glass out to look at the small print. He's not pulling off a commentary off the shelf to understand when God says, get up, go, arise, go to Nineveh and tell them this message very simply. And we have Hebrews, which tells us God has given us the blessing of his word for understanding that we are to study it and that the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. We actually do not need man's commentaries to understand the word of God. That is why we have the Holy Spirit of God in us. And if you only had a copy of the Bible the rest of your life and you had no study tools, you had no internet to go to, the Holy Spirit would teach you from the Word of God and you would see the same type of command that's given to Jonah is given to you if you are a follower of Christ. And the follower of Christ has been commanded by the Word of God to arise and go and make disciples. And that is what you are commanded to do, just as Jonah is called. And not to necessarily go and make disciples, but he's going to Nineveh to call out against Nineveh. And so we have the word of God. We have a call to go. 
And we, like Jonah, must give an account, as Hebrews says, to, and as, as a response to the word of God. So let's look at verse 2 and let's put our feet in Jonah's shoes this morning as God gives him a command to go. It says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it for their what? What has come up to God? Their evil, their wickedness, their sinfulness. It's not like God didn't know this, but this is drawing God's attention to them. And God is very specific. Jonah, get up, go, tell them what I tell you to do. It Very simple direction. The question, though, is why Nineveh? Because all of the Gentile nations around Israel are worshiping other gods. They're doing evil, wicked things. Why is God interested in Nineveh? Well, for those of you who have studied history and you know of the Assyrian Empire, you know that Nineveh at one point was a great capital city of Assyria. It's located on the Tigris River, about 500 miles northeast of Israel. If you read Genesis chapter 10, for all of you mighty hunters out there, uh, a guy named Nimrod, and it doesn't mean idiot or stupid or dummy, it, it says that he was a mighty hunting man. He built the city of Nineveh. And the Ninevites and the Assyrians, but specifically the Ninevites, they worshiped three main gods. One of them was Ishtar, a goddess of love and war. They also worshiped the fish goddess Nanshi and also Dagon, the false god that was half man and half fish. But Nineveh, as well as all the Assyrians, were very infamous for their violence and their cruelty in war. During wartime, you can go and read, and again, you can't mention even, say some of the stuff that they would do. It was just a horrific thing that they would do when they would go against people in battle. If you turn to the right to the book of Nahum, which we will be in just a couple weeks from now, you see at a later time, you see a prophecy against the Ninevites through the prophet Nahum in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The word of God says, Woe to to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. And you could continue on, but Nahum speaks of the destruction of Nineveh that would come at some point, which we'll look at two weeks from now. But at this point, when God sends Jonah, he says, tell them that I am going to wipe them out. And Jonah is commanded to go. This is God's plan revealed in his word to spare the Ninevites for a time. And just as we've seen the last few weeks in the minor prophets, God's wrath is to be upon mankind. And he is patient 
and he is a patient, and he withholds his wrath for a period of time. And so years after Jonah going to Nineveh, Nineveh would be wiped out. As the Assyrians come against the nation of Israel, there is a point at which God will destroy the Ninevites. And it's clear when you read these four chapters of Jonah that Jonah clearly thought, God, why are you sending me to those wicked pagan Gentiles? Those dogs, why would you send me there? I'm a prophet to the nation of Israel. And what he forgot is many within the nation of Israel, leader after leader forgot that back in Genesis chapter 12, and when you follow with the covenant with Abraham to follow, that God says that he will bless all of the Gentile nations, all the nations of the world through Abraham pointing to Christ And one of the things that is pointed out throughout the Old Testament is that the nation of Israel did not speak of the things of the Lord to the Gentile nations. They were not a light to the Gentile nations. And so Jonah falls right in line and says, why would I go to them, God? Those pagan Gentiles. And he does not remember, or like the other Israelites, they don't remember that God called Abraham, who was a pagan, God called Abraham, who was a worshiper of false gods, and said, you will be mine, and I will make my covenant with you. And through you, not only this nation and my people, but you will bless the Gentile nations, pointing to Jesus Christ. And so Jonah learns of God's grace and mercy upon the Gentiles. Look at verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1. What does Jonah do? What's he do? He runs, right? He doesn't go right to Nineveh. He says, no, I'm going to Tarshish. And trying to say that three times when you read verse 3 is hard. Tarshish. He wants to get away from the Lord, so he goes down and jumps on a ship. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from what? The presence of the Lord. Highlight that, circle that, underline that. As we studied last year and looked at God's attributes and we looked at His omnipresence, um, can you run from God's presence, church? And some of you might say that, but you maybe think you can for a time. You can't. God knows everything. He sees everything. And so Jonah says, all right, I'm going to pay this fare Get me away. And he goes in the ship and takes a nap. But you cannot run from the presence of the Lord. The same sinfulness that God is calling out in Nineveh is seen in the heart of Jonah. The same sinfulness that you see, the wickedness of the nation of Nineveh is seen in Jonah's response to God. And I say, well, no, he's just, you know, he's upset. No, he's rebelling against God, just like the nation of Israel, being called repeatedly by God, a stiff-necked, stubborn people. <clears throat> and so those who think that they can escape from the presence of God are badly mistaken. Psalm chapter 139. It's... Tradition speculated that Jonah would have been in the school of prophets. He would have known these psalms. And Psalm 139 verse 7 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Listen to this. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. What happens to Jonah? He doesn't get swallowed by a whale. So let's get that out of the way. It never says whale. It always says great fish. So uh, pictures on the nursery of the whale. There's no whale that's mentioned a great fish. But he says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Have you tried to flee from the Lord? Are there points in your life where you thought you were away from the presence of God and then you find out, oh, wow, God's here. Points of turmoil in your life. God is here. Jeremiah 23, 23. God says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Read Isaiah chapter 40. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah chapter 40. And you see God's might. You see his glory. There's no way that anyone could ever uh, hide from him. To think that scripture tells us that when Christ returns, people will want to hide in the caves of the mountains and say, and, and say, mountains fall on me. So they can hide from the wrath of God that is coming. In our human minds, we think we can do that, but it is something that is impossible And so when you look at the rest of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, the story that you can go and read this week, the account of what happens, he gets in the boat, he takes a nap, and as the journey comes, it says the Lord sends a great wind. And this wind stirs up the sea to the point that the ship is about to break up, and the sailors begin to call out to all their false gods. And then they cast lots and they throw the die, whatever it is. And they say, wait, Jonah, you're the one who caused this. And he says to them, I worship the God who created the sea. Shaking in their boots. And he's like, throw me into the sea because I'm running from the Lord. And even them, they're like, that's ridiculous, running from the Lord. So they throw him into the sea and the storm rages on, right? No. What happens when Jonah gets tossed in? It stops. It ceases. There's calmness. And then it says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. So Jonah wants to die, but God's not going to let him die because God has given him a charge to go and do something and God's going to make him. And you think, well, why didn't he just pick some other prophets? Why didn't he just pick someone else that was like, hey, I'll go to Nineveh? No, God was teaching Jonah. And I believe that he uses that to teach us because we are just like Jonah. And so he goes to the depths of the sea in the belly of this great fish. And that salt of that chapter two, we read at the beginning of the service, that prayer of thanksgiving that God saved him. And he's like, all right, Lord, I'll go. And then it says God appointed, he spoke to the fish to go and vomit Jonah up on the sea, on the shoreline. And so then chapter three, he goes and he gets the call again. He says, go out and call against the nation or the city of Nineveh. And one of the things I thought about was when Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, he prays this glorious prayer. But yet his heart is still ugly. I mean, think about it. Sometimes we can call out to God and give him praise and glory or whatever, and our hearts are just ugly. They're filled with hatred towards others. 
There's things that we want for me, myself, and I, and we don't want God to be in control. And yet he prays that great prayer of thanksgiving, and yet his heart still has great hatred for the people of Nineveh. So he goes into Nineveh and simply says, in 40 days, you will be overthrown. And it says before he even gets through the first day of going, walking through the city, that people begin to do what? What do they do? I don't know, is everyone afraid to say something this morning? Like, no, you're wrong. What do they do? What do the people do when they hear him calling out against them? They repent. Key word there. Write that down. They repent. They begin to uh, go before the Lord and they're asking for forgiveness from the youngest to the oldest, from the most impoverished to the greatest and most powerful, all the way to the king who then declares a fast. Everyone wears sackcloth, even those animals that we have. And perhaps the Lord will relent and show mercy is what he says. And when it says that God relents, some of your versions are wrong in the sense they say that God changed his mind. And in our world, when we think of that definition of that, that's different than relenting. If you read scripture, when God told the nation of Israel before they went to the promised land, before they went into there, that if you obey me, you will be blessed. But if you turn against me and worship the other gods, then I will send uh, uh, my wrath upon you. And if you repent and turn from that, then I will relent from those things. So this is not God changing his mind. He's already said, if people are going to worship other gods, my wrath will be upon them. But if they repent, then I will not pour out that wrath upon them. That is not a God who wavers. That's not a God who lies. And that's not a changing of mind as you and I would say, hey, can I get some mint and chip ice cream? And they begin to fill up the thing and it's like, oh, you know what? I don't want that. Can you get me the vanilla with whatever on it? And they're like, why did you change your mind? I just wasted it. Well, because I wanted to. That's not how God uh, works. He has his word. He holds his word. He never relents from his word. He relents from his wrath and punishment when it's according to his word. So know that God's in sovereign control. His plans and his will never changes because he does not change. And he does not lie. And because of that, we should praise the Lord and give thanks to him. So God says he's not going to wipe them out. Jonah gets ticked off. You ever been so angry before? I mean, so angry that the, the, the blood vessels in your neck are popping. So angry that you're like so red, you're starting to sweat. You're starting to yell. You got to go outside because you don't want to say the wrong thing to someone. You got to go get in your car and go for a ride. Hopefully don't take anyone out. You're going out for a hike, whatever, because you're so angry. This is Jonah. God, why did you send me? I knew you'd be this way. And he's just screaming and yelling in that sense with God. And so look at chapter four, verses six through nine here. God says, do you have any right to be angry, Jonah? And ask yourself this. Do you or have you at any time in your life had the right to be angry with someone? And I could say there's probably a bunch of hands that would say like, yes, I had the right to be angry with this person about this. God said, do you have any right to be angry with me? Because Jonah's ticked at God. It's like, 
Jonah goes out of the city, gets a stadium chair set to watch the big game where God's going to destroy Nineveh, even though that God has already relented. And it's like, wait, are you going to wait more than a month and just sit here day after day after day? God didn't tell him, go out of the city and wait. He should have gone home. But instead, he's like, I'm going to sit here. I'm so angry with you, God. I'm going to, you're going to smoke these people. Watch, they're not going to uh, uh, relent very long. They're not going to repent very long. And he's just angry. Verse 6, after he builds his shelter, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He is so excited because, I mean, imagine 100 degree uh, every day. That area, the record I think I saw was like 127 or 128 degrees. I mean, imagine that. And then God sends this scorching wind and he's got this little shelter. And so God grows a plant overnight. I'm like, what an amazing plant. And he's very glad about the plant. God shows his mercy upon Jonah who has no right to speak back to God. And how many times have I spoken back to God and I was angry with God and I had no right to do that. Yet God showed mercy to me. And what God does through our account of reading through Jonah, in each of these things that have happened, you see God's sovereign control. Chapter 1, verse 4, it says, The Lord hurled a great wind. Chapter 1, verse uh, 17, it says, The Lord appointed a great fish. In chapter 2, verse 10, The Lord spoke to the fish. In chapter 4, verse 6, it hears, The Lord appointed a plant. And then look at verse 7. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a what? A worm. Some of you love worms, they help your garden. This worm does not. That attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed, there it is, a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. God, don't miss that God is in sovereign control of the universe. Try to control the wind yourself. Try to call a fish to respond to you, which would be great if you like fishing. Just jump on that hook. Tell a fish to go vomit on the shore. I mean, you go through these things and you read, God is in complete control and he's created and given Jonah life. And Jonah dares spout off to God because his heart is wrong. His heart is in rebellion. His heart is sinful before the Lord. And God patiently, steadfastly continues to show his love and his mercy and his grace upon Jonah, whom he's called, who he loves, even when Jonah gives him the finger and says, no, God, you have nothing in this. God shows his mercy to him. And so verse nine is the heart issue. But God says to Jonah, 
do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Have you been so angry that you just want to die? So ticked off that you're like, take me now, Lord. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, I was thankful for the time in the Word last week that went to Romans chapter 9. And the reminder of God's uh, control of the world, his, the universe, His complete control, His sovereignty. And it gives us a response, in a sense, from His Word to like Jonah responding to God in Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 20. God says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's like, I am God. I will do what I want to because I've created all this and I have a will and I have a plan. You have no word to rebel against me, to tell me what to do because you are not God. But Jonah explodes because he is human. And we explode at times at God because we are human. And sometimes we get so angry because of the trouble in this world and the things that have come against us and how people have hurt us. And we also get angry with God because we want things for ourselves and not for others. The next time you're in line at some place and someone in front of you gets some better benefit greater than you, check your heart. Because I don't know if you've been in the position like me before where you're waiting in line. And it's like, wait, you just helped them with it. You just, wait, that took 30 seconds. You're going to tell me I've got to wait 10 minutes for I mean, think about that. This is Jonah. This is his heart. This is the heart of mankind. We want everything for ourselves. And so, Lord, it's not done my way in my time. So I'm ticked at you now. I'm going to go hide from him. I'm going to punish you, Lord. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. And after the younger son comes back, and the father receives him and hugs him and kisses him and puts the robe around him and the ring, he's like, throw a party. The older brother is Jonah. He will not come to the party. He's ticked that dad brought him back. He wasted all your money. He's like, Yeah, he was lost, but now he's found. And yet, I've been the older brother. I've been the Jonah. And I've yelled at God, even from my heart, saying, that's not right. That's not fair. And God's like, do you have any right to be angry? Because I can tell you, in my sinfulness, I have prayed and asked God to wipe people out. Is bad. I've prayed, Lord, would you just take that person now? Because I can't stand that person. I actually have hatred, and Jesus teaches that if we hate someone, it's the same as murder. I was masking it under God, do you take him out? God bless the church, bless me, bless my family, bless the Christians. Wipe out all those lost people, wipe out all those pagans. Destroy those people who are in leadership in these places. Get rid of those people. This is what Jonah basically wants. And so when God shows his mercy on Jonah, Jonah's ticked. 
He doesn't even see God's compassion for him. All he sees is like, God, you're, you're helping those people over there. I'm so angry and ticked with you. And if you ask this question, how can God be just, merciful, and show grace to people who are so evil? You need to go and look in the mirror. Romans chapter 3 is very clear. Every single one of us, born with a sin nature, no one does good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look in the mirror and remember the cross. The grace of God through Jesus Christ, His Son, who shed His blood for His people, that by Jesus' death, when He bore your sins, they were taken away. Might have used this illustration before. Two friends growing up, they go different ways. One becomes a criminal. The other one goes to law school, eventually becomes a judge. The criminal one day is arrested for his crimes and comes into the courtroom of the judge who is his best friend growing up. The judge who is just sees his friend, knows who he is, and he declares him guilty. And then after declaring him guilty, he takes off his robe and he comes down by his friend and he pays the fine for his friend. A kind of picture of Christ loving us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him who knew no sin who knew so for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what church? The righteousness of God. Praise God. To think that through salvation in Christ, through faith in Christ, that we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ so that when God the Father sees us, He sees the righteousness of His Son and He does not see the sin nature we were born with and He justifies us, adopts us, and makes us His own. The great love, mercy, and grace of God upon His people. And when you look at chapter 4, we bring this to an end, the last two verses. The question is, should I not be gracious? Should I not be gracious? If God has shown me grace and mercy and love, shouldn't I do the same thing? And I would argue with you and say, this is probably your greatest challenge in this world. As the Holy Spirit directs you and leads you and guides you as you follow Him and He sanctifies you, your challenge to show the compassion and love and mercy that God has shown you to others becomes your greatest challenge. Something to think about and pay attention to and to pray that God would help you in. And so we see God's grace in His sovereignty in sending the wind to stopping Jonah from going to Tarshish. We see God's grace in the fish that swallowed him. We even see God's grace in the vomit. Think about it. God could have left him in the fish even after he prayed, Lord, forgive me. But he speaks to the fish, vomit him up over here. And you see God's grace upon Jonah. 
God uses whatever he wants, whatever he chooses to bring his people back to him when they run. And when you look at Matthew chapter 18, Jesus speaks of the shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Now know this, in the gospel accounts, every time that Jesus says sheep, he's talking about Christians, his people. The goats are those who do not believe in Christ. They're not his people. So he says a shepherd has a hundred sheep and 99 are there, but one's missing. One of his people have strayed away, just like Jonah. I'm going to hide from you, God. I'm not going to do what you're doing. And they run off, thinking they can hide from the presence of the Lord. And he says, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the loving shepherd, just like John chapter 10, leaves the 99 where they're there. And he goes and finds the sheep, one of his own people who strayed, and he brings them back. This is what God does to Jonah. This is what God does to you. Because as you follow Christ in your lifetime, as you are a Christian, as you, after you've come to faith, there are points in your life where you stray and you hide and you run from God. You think that you can hide from his presence and he lovingly and gently and sometimes very aggressively brings you back to him because as John chapter 10 says, he will lose none of his sheep. And God is glorious and he is the good, great shepherd. Verse 10 of Jonah 4, and the Lord said, you pity the plant. The word pity there in verse 10, 11 means to have compassion. You pity the plant for which you did not labor. You did not make it, you did, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, again, finally had concern over something. He's like, you pity the plant. He's like, but you have no concern for 120,000 people who the wrath of God is upon them. In verse 11, God says, and should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from the left and also much cattle? Jonah, what is more important to you, your comfort or those who are perishing and dying in their sins? Jonah, what is more important to you that you get this, 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 and this in life and you're first here and this is a blessing and all these things are great and you don't have sickness and you don't die this way and you have a great house and a great retirement and you have all these things and you get all these vacations, you have all these toys, I want all these things, but yet you don't care that one person over here is living in darkness and will die in their sins without faith in Jesus Christ alone. They will be then cast into hell and the wrath of God for all eternity will be upon them. Jonah, what is it? He's like, shouldn't I have pity on them is what God says. You like the plant and the pleasure. Shouldn't I have pity upon 120,000 people? You see, God values our souls more than any comfort or anything in this universe. And that should be your view as well. In Luke chapter 19, as Jesus was going to Jerusalem to go to the cross, in Luke 19, 41, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Church, when was the last time that you wept over the city of Missoula? 
I checked this morning just to see. I know that a few years ago we were at 74,000 people. The estimates were like close to 80,000. I mean, who knows how many people are here. They said 10 years from now we'd be over 120,000. But the way things are going, it could be greater than that 10 years from now. Do you weep over the city of Missoula? The numbers of people. So what if there's only 74,000 people? What if there's 64,000 people who are completely lost? And just walking in darkness daily. And the wrath of God is upon them. Do you weep over them? Is there anything that strikes your heart? Even your friends, your co-workers, your schoolmates, your teachers, your neighbors. Or are you okay going, well, God's sovereign. He'll, he'll deal with them. He'll call them. I don't have to go. And it's like, no. Every single one of you, if you say right now, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 18, Acts chapter 1. You have been commanded. Arise, go, make disciples. And you do that by sharing the gospel of Jesus. I don't have that excuse saying, oh, I just do it on Sunday mornings at the pulpit. No, you do it where you go. You have the same call, the same responsibility. And as Jonah has to give an account to the word of God, you too have to give an account to the word of God. And so Jesus wept over Israel's rejection of him as Messiah. Jonah, why aren't you weeping over the city? Jonah, I have saved you from the pit of the depths of the waters, in the fish. I have shown you compassion, Jonah. Jonah, where is your compassion? Jonah, there is a city of people waiting to hear the message. He says, people who don't know their right hand from their left, basically meaning unable to distinguish between morality and spirituality. People who are helpless to be set free from their sinful, rebellious, wicked lifestyle. And repent. Unless the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the people who are lost and points them to the cross of Jesus, there is no belief. There is no faith. There is no following Christ. There is no softening of the heart. So is our prayer simply that the wicked would be saved? Or is our prayer that the Holy Spirit would soften the hearts of the people in Missoula, that as you go and share the gospel with them, they would see Christ and his grace, and they would believe in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins and be saved. That's God's plan, church. It's not to get people in the church building. I've been praying all the time. This neighborhood, these apartments, tomorrow night we're doing the safety station. Uh, you know, it's like, yes, Lord, we want to see people come to faith and be baptized. But our goal is not to fill up this church and have multiple services and get to the point where we have to go build a building on the grass that's bigger and better. No, the goal is that people who are lost would be found by the grace of God. And he is chosen through his words, his people, and his plan for you to go and do it. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our what? Savior. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
And then he says, how will people know? How will people come to faith? How will they hear unless someone goes? And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who go and declare the gospel. How beautiful are you and your feet as you go and declare the gospel, shaking and fearful and in need of the Holy Spirit, say, give me the words to say today. This person may never speak to me. This family that's coming to Thanksgiving, they may walk out the door. So what? You're like, well, that's bad. So what in eternity? At least they've heard the word of the Lord. And they must give an account to the Lord, even if they never spoke to you again. And so Romans 9, 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there an justice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on who? God, who has mercy. <clears throat> and so that last verse is left in answer. You, I mean, I don't know about you. I was like, man, what did you want to do? I mean... He must have wrote this book down. Did he go back to Israel? Was our heart changed? Are you still angry? He's, you know, he, he was obedient you know, to God. But what did he do? We don't know. And it's because it's like a parable in the sense that you are to respond to that question. You are to respond. That's what God has presented to you. Especially, number one, if you're a follower of Christ, will you be, be obedient to his word? If you're not a follower of Christ and you've come in here today, you've heard the gospel preached to you and G, that Jesus Christ has died on the cross and he shed his blood to remove your sins, that through faith in him that you would be saved. And he was buried and placed in the tomb for three days. And on the third day, he rose from death to life. He's ascended to heaven. And as we've been studying in the minor prophets, he is returning. His wrath is coming and the call is for you to repent and believe in Christ to be saved and if you are here you've heard the gospel and now you are responsible to give an account to the word of God the last verse Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 if you are a follower of Christ Jesus spoke this to the disciples but he speaks this to you Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. A great comfort for the people of God. As the worship team comes forward, Christians, all you Jonas out there, who are you praying for? Students in your schools, even those of you who go to Christian schools, yes, in your Christian schools, there are people who are lost. Do you pray for them? Those of you who are going to work tomorrow morning, who is those non-Christians that you will see? The pressure builds, your heart starts racing. Trust the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit. Your neighbor who you have not talked to. Your family member that you need to call this afternoon. You do not know when the Lord is returning. Come tonight at 5 o'clock because in Second Peter chapter 3, he's like, he comes like a thief of the night. He's going to be coming back when you do not expect. And so um, know that Christ will come today. 
And his plan is to use you to declare his good news so that people would believe. Father, we ask for great help. We need you, Jesus. There is pressure upon our hearts for those who are lost that we love. And there's fear for some of us. And we don't know what to say or how to start the discussion. And Father, I pray that your spirit would empower every believer here from the youngest to the oldest. And would you ordain opportunities today, tomorrow, in the days to come that we would see your people declaring the gospel of Jesus and we would see your Holy Spirit working and calling people to you. That we would rejoice in your salvation. Father, I pray also that if we have hard hearts this morning and there's people that you brought to our hearts today that we would not want to talk to, that we would not even want to pray for, would you soften our heart? And Father, for any believers who are here, those listening to my voice, who have strayed, bring them back and do that in your way. All the glory goes to you, Jesus. Amen.